พุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนมัสสังธรรมพาดาเวสสองร้อยหกสิบเจ็ด never has it been nor is it now nor will it ever be the case that anybody is entirely praised or entirely blamed to include this topic in our regular reflections I was going to say can be useful I think it's more than useful it's really important because everybody is praised and blamed the Buddha was praised and blamed what happens to us when we're praised and blamed how do we feel when somebody praises us do we get lost in that and And if we do that, what happens when somebody criticizes or disagrees with us or rejects us or blames us? What happens then? Well, the chances are we're going to get lost in that. So this is an important territory that all of us benefit from bringing awareness, bringing sensitivity to. In our heads, somebody praises us, and we're telling ourselves a story about whether it's warranted or whether it's great or not so great. And are we really learning from that? Are we feeling the feeling of delight in our chest, the good feeling of how wonderful it is to be appreciated, or are we getting lost in that feeling? And as I was saying, if we do get lost in that feeling, then when somebody rejects us. If we're up in our heads, well, then we can just go into a story about how dare they, and the energy is just whirling around in our heads. And if we really can't resolve it just by thinking, then it starts coming out, and we start saying unpleasant things. Do we really learn if we're meeting it on that level? I would suggest we don't. The same thing just keeps happening: praise and blame, getting lost in both. Whereas if we come down to feeling how we feel when somebody criticizes us, can we feel that hurt? Can we feel hurt in our hearts, in the center of our chest? Can we feel hurt? Can we can we feel hurt and can we feel disappointed? That movement that we experience is disappointment, and maybe try feeling to the edge of that feeling and. Perhaps even make the effort to feel beyond that, and come to recognize that there's a larger reality, so to speak, that that feeling of hurt is arising and ceasing within. That's a different level of contemplation. If we don't really meet ourselves in our feeling when we receive praise and blame, there's a very real risk. We'll get lost in it. When they praise us, we get lost in that. They blame us, we get lost in that. And one of the consequences of getting lost in praise and blame is it feeds into this deluded notion that all unawakened beings suffer from that, that we're special, especially talented, especially sensitive, or. Or especially untalented, especially insensitive. Now, having said that, if you, right now, when I say that, it occurs to you that you feel special or think you're special, or at some other time 
when you remember this reflection and you start thinking you're special or feeling you're special, don't jump to the conclusion that there's something going wrong or feeling bad about the fact that you think you're special. You don't have to feel bad because you feel you're special. All unawakened beings, all deluded personalities think they're special. That's what makes us all the same. All unawakened beings think they're special. What it's good is to know that you think you're special. It takes a degree of self-awareness to register that, to be honest enough. It takes a good degree of honesty to admit, oh, I think I'm special. You've already got some perspective, you've already got a reasonably expanded field of awareness whereby you've got some sense of, oh, that's the perception arising and ceasing in my mind, the feeling that arising and ceasing in my heart, You've got some perspective on it, which means there's something we can do about it. We can investigate it, we can learn from it. The ones we need, really need to be worried about are those ones who pretend they don't think they're special. That's a really dangerous condition. There are, fortunately, some beings who are really special, and they are the ones who truly see clearly this perception of I am special, I am better, or I am equal, or I am worse than anybody else. They truly see such a perception as just an activity taking place in vast awareness, arising and ceasing, a conditioned perception. And because they have that accuracy of perception, there's no clinging, and so there's no suffering, and so there's no unfortunate consequences. For the rest of us, because we don't have that degree of accuracy of seeing, perception of being better, equal or worse, or exceptional or unexceptional, whatever the perception might be, of how special we are, we don't see it, then it results in clinging. And that leads to all sorts of suffering. That's very unfortunate. Of course, we're each unique on the level of characteristics. There's never been another version of this model made. There's only ever been this one. If we look genetically, karmically, or in terms of the environmental influences that we've been subjected to, there's never been and there never will be another being identical to this one. So this one here is unique. However, if in our being we fall for the deluded notion that I am special that's what makes us the same as everybody else all unawakened beings have that deluded notion that they're special especially privileged especially intelligent especially sensitive especially burdened especially unfortunate especially good-looking, especially not good-looking, especially blessed, or especially boring, exceptionally inconsequential, all deluded egos entertain ideas of exceptionality. How do we address this? Because it causes us suffering. comparing ourselves to others, competing with others, one-upmanship, 
if we're not suffering, if we're not aware of the suffering we cause ourselves, then we can also be causing a lot of suffering to other people in the process of believing in a deluded sense of being special. Ajahn Chah spoke about this once, well he might have spoken about it many times, however there's, there's one teaching where he talks about this with regards to some Abhidhamma teachings he had been reading where the condition of conceited self-view is analysed into nine different types. There are those beings who think they're better than others when in fact they are better than others. There's those beings who think they're equal to others when in fact they're, they're better than others. There's those beings who think they're worse than others when in fact they're better than others. There's those beings who think they're equal to others when in fact they're better than others. There's those beings who think they're equal to others when in fact they are equal to others. And there's those beings who think they're equal to others when in fact they're worse than others. And then there's those beings who think they're worse than others when in fact they're better than others. There's those better beings who think they're worse than others when in fact they're equal to others. And there's those beings who think they're worse than others when in fact they are worse than others. So Ajahn Chah had read this and then he was thinking, oh, that covers every perception of how we perceive ourselves in relationship to others. What do we do with it? How do we relate to this? And also, the fact is, Ajahn Chah was saying, the fact is, I am better than some of these other monks. I can sew robes better, I can chant better. And do lots of things better than so. How do we handle this? And then the valuable insight that he had that he helpfully shared was that it's not the perception that's the problem of being better, equal, or worse. It's the relationship with the perception. It's the clinging. It's getting lost in the perception of being better, equal, or worse than others. The Pali word of ditti mana. Ditti means view, or kwamhen in Thai. Mana means conceited view. And Ajahn Chah was explaining the ditti, the view, the kwamhen, is saktewa kwamhen. The mana, the, the clinging, yet man to a man, that's the source of the problem. The conceited view is not so much a question about the view. Conventionally speaking, it's true, we are better, equal or worse than, than others. So the way to approach this is not to worry too much about whether we think we're better, equal or worse than others. How much are we seeking an identity in that perception? Are we identified as those conventional perceptions of being better, equal or worse than others? Or do we have the spaciousness the open-hearted awareness within which those perceptions can arise and cease. Can we feel what we feel when we feel better, equal or worse? And then use our discernment faculty to be able to see how to respond. So a question is not getting about how to get rid of such conventional perceptions. The question is how do we loosen the knot, the tangle that is the knot of deluded egoity or deluded self. How do we loosen this knot? And the Buddha's solution to this conundrum is 
in Pali, Satipanya. That's the cure for this dysfunction, Satipanya. Sati, disciplined attention, and Panya, discernment. Discipline, attention, and discernment, the Buddha said, is a way to untangle this knot, to move in the direction of freedom from suffering. And let's be very clear that this disciplined attention, this sati, and this discernment, this panya, is not just an idea. Again, if we're identified in our heads and we hear these teachings, we think, oh, that sounds right, that sounds very good. I'd go along with that. What it actually is this quality of disciplined attention, sati? Because the idea of disciplined attention is very different from the actuality of disciplined attention. Just like the idea of your favorite beach. My favorite beach is Rangiputa in the north of the North Island of New Zealand. You have an idea of it, I have an idea of it. Or you can Google it, Rangiputa, north of North Island of New Zealand, and you can see some nice photographs. Those are approximations. Those photographs, and or the idea that I have, is very different from the actuality of walking alone by the edge of the sea on that very beautiful beach, clear water, or sitting under one of those gorgeous potakawa trees that hang off the cliffs of the beach. The experience of sitting there or walking on that beach is a completely different reality from the idea or the photograph. Or in this case, from the text that we read about Satipanya, the ideas we have about Satipanya, about disciplined attention, about discernment, they're useful, they point in a certain direction. So, yes, the Buddha held up Satipanya as the, 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 the cure for this dysfunction that we have of being identified as this tangled knot of deluded selfhood and it causes so much suffering for ourselves and for others. However, merely understanding it conceptually is not enough. We need disciplined attention, we need the sati that is embodied, like the Maha Satipatthana Sutta, the first foundation, or the four foundations. Satipatthana Sutta is the body, is it an embodied quality of disciplined attention? Is it an embodied quality of disciplined attention with regards to the feelings in the second of the four foundations of disciplined attention? Mm. Feeling, Vedana Nusati. We can be thinking about feelings, saying, well, that's an agreeable feeling, or that's a disagreeable feeling. The thought about whether a feeling is agreeable or disagreeable is very different from the feeling. Where do we feel a feeling? Not in our heads. That's, that's already somewhat removed from the actuality. So the reason I'm laboring this point is because so often in our practice we relate to these teachings from merely ideas and they don't have the benefit they could potentially be having. We need to come out of our heads, into our hearts, into the center of our chest and feel what does it really feel like 
when we're praised, when we're blamed. As I was saying in the beginning, can we feel a good feeling of being praised and appreciated by somebody without becoming lost in it? Can we simply feel it? Maybe try feeling to the edges of that feeling and then put the suggestion in of feeling beyond it with the idea that there's a context in which that good feeling is arising and ceasing. And this is this is not just something that we do when we're in sitting meditation. You can be doing this in everyday life when somebody says something nice to you. Some people make a big problem out of being praised. They can't stand being praised. They can't stand being appreciated. What's going on there? So, sati, panya, discipline, attention, and discernment of the Buddha's, what the Buddha held up as the solution to this conundrum that we're caught up in of the deluded personality. Maybe you're thinking, well, what is the place of metta, or conscious caring, or or karuna, compassion, and all of this. And, and I would say that it's safe to assume that if there is really sati and panya developing, then these qualities of conscious caring and compassion will be a natural result, happen naturally. Also, maybe you're thinking that all this talk about disciplined attention and and discernment requires a huge amount of study and again I, I, I would caution against that a certain amount of study absolutely is helpful very important to get conventional understanding of what the Buddha had to say about right view and the path of practice really important however if we're addicted to conceptual certainty then we're never going to let come down out of our heads and, and start to perform the feeling investigation that's required to be really getting the message the consequence of getting lost in praise and blame the consequence of getting lost in pleasure and pain is not something we're really going to know by merely thinking about it come down into our hearts and feel what it feels like and just as like a child, you, know, you want to warn a child against touching the stove. The stove just looks black. And they don't know that the, it's dangerous and hot. And you try to explain to them, and they don't get it. Only if you put their hand near it, not not so close as to hurt them, but near, they start to feel all oh, right. Oh, yeah, that's I can't come close to it. They don't even have that thought. It's just their body responds deeply. They get the message that's dangerous. And likewise, the consequence of our getting lost in pleasure and pain, and praise and blame, gain and loss, honor and insignificance, the eight worldly wins, the eight worldly dhammas, the consequence of getting lost in that is something we're going to possibly learn if we have a feeling awareness available to us. So let's not make the mistake of thinking we need to do a huge amount of study or do a lots of retreats. It's another danger and we maybe go on a meditation retreat and and have some different really pleasing experiences and 
discover what it's like to have, experience the open-hearted state and the, the sensitivity that's available there, the investigations that are possible there, the, and the potential for discernment that's available in the open-hearted state. Think, oh, I've got to have more of that. Just can't wait until you go on the next retreat. And that's missing the point. There are times for going on retreat. There are times for doing study. Also, there are times for learning from what's happening right now, whether it's agreeable or disagreeable, interesting or thoroughly boring. Our feeling investigation. And it might, the investigation might be something as simple as just asking ourselves the question, what do you want? Yes, we know about the Buddha's teachings on the Four Noble Truths, and we've heard about the the Twelve Links of Dependent Origination and Impermanence, Unsatisfaction, and Not-Self. We have this theory. However, if all of that in our minds has not stopped us from suffering, what do we do about the suffering? How do we approach it? Well, asking that question in a feeling way, asking ourselves, asking our hearts, asking our guts, that question, what do I want right now? And I know for myself how useful this can be. I can remember in my first year as a monk living in Wat Ingmak Pang, Ajahn Tate's monastery in the northeast of Thailand. And, and for various reasons I was suffering enormously that year. And, and I was walking up and down on my meditation track and discovered that this question, just this simple question, what do you want, makes a big difference. And the reason it makes a difference, I would suggest, is because we direct attention to that dimension of our being where the suffering is really arising. That is, in the heart, not in our heads. What do you want as a feeling is taking place in the heart. I want to get out of here. Or, I want to eat peanut butter and manuka honey on toast. <laughs> or whatever it is that occurs. Wanting is a movement, it's energy. And if we're resisting it because we have some philosophical idea, oh, we shouldn't be wanting, a, this is five o'clock in the afternoon, I shouldn't be wanting peanut butter and manuka honey on toast. That's, that's not a way a monk should be behaving. And so we're denying that that's what we want or I want to get out of here, or I shouldn't be feeling that way, I I should be wanting to be here and practicing the Dhamma. And and so we resist the wanting. And most of us develop very early on in lives all sorts of tendencies to resist and deny and downright lie to ourselves about our desires. Like wanting to be appreciated. You know, maybe it feels weak. I should be a strong and independent person. I shouldn't need other people's appreciation. And so maybe we lie to ourselves about wanting to be appreciated, wanting to be understood. And I don't need you. I can stand on my own two feet. For all sorts of reasons in, in our early life, we, we learn to deny the feelings of wanting. And so to come into conscious relationship with that energy can take a particular sort of effort. However, it doesn't take necessarily a lot of studying books and going on retreats, maybe all it takes is asking the simple question, what do you want right now? What do you want? And meet that. Feel that. Now, 
again, as I've often said before, our habits of denying life sometimes mean that we've got a lot of energy stored up. So when we start being honest with ourselves and we ask such a simple, straightforward question about what is it you want right now, you might feel like you're going to be overwhelmed by backlog of irrational wanting. And so we do have to be careful and be cautious. It's only a simple question, however, it can be a key that opens a door to things that have been locked away for a very long time. If asking the question, what do you want, doesn't bring about some sense of settling or resolution, then maybe the question you need to be asking is, what are you afraid of right now? Yes, you could be studying lots of books and going on retreats. A lot of that could be taking you further away from where you're at. Sooner or later, the practice is going to have to take us to meeting ourselves where we're at, right here now. And if where we're at is that we've got unacknowledged fear, then that simple feeling inquiry into what is it you're afraid of Asking your heart, asking your guts, asking your foot, Hmm. asking all of you, what is it you're afraid of? Desire and fear go together and sometimes asking what you want is what's called for, sometimes asking what you're afraid of is what's called for. Most of us haven't had the education to realize that when there's desire arise in the heart and the mind, and we don't see it and we cling to it, at that very point we condition the equal and opposite fear of not getting what we want. I want to be appreciated, we cling to it. The equal and opposite, I'm afraid of not being appreciated, I'm afraid of being rejected. I want to be successful, if we cling to it, to the equal and opposite degree, we are afraid of failing. I want to get better, I want to recover from this sickness. If we don't see it and we cling to it, then to the equal and opposite degree, we're afraid we're not going to recover from the sickness. So desire and fear go together, so long as we're clinging. And so these two avenues of inquiry can be very productive. What is it you want right now? Or what are you afraid of? Also, sometimes if we've got such strong habits of denying wanting and fear, that the result can be anger. And so the question that we might need to be asking is, what are you angry about? And we're not asking our heads this question, we're trying to come into conscious, unobstructed relationship with our heart energy, so that we take full responsibility for it. Because if we don't take responsibility for it, nobody is. And then there's a chance it's going to leak out and cause trouble in the world which, of course, is what's happening and has been happening for a long time. Unawakened beings not knowing how to take responsibility for their heart energy and and then it goes toxic and and then spews out onto the world and causes suffering. So this investigation is not a philosophical argument. This is an inquiry about how to take full responsibility for where we're at right now. Asking what you want doesn't take us to some clarity or 
what are you afraid of doesn't take some clarity there may be this question of what are you angry about might do it because anger can cover up wanting and fear so these questions these are relevant questions these are real questions these are questions that can really help loosen the tangle the knot of self-delusion that we're identified as and the suffering that comes as a result of being identified as this knot and the pain, the loneliness, the numbness, the deadness, the habit of denying life produces a kind of a numbness. We lose connection with aliveness and and then we running around looking for ways of making ourselves feel alive. Yeah, I gotta go and listen to another inspiring Dhamma talk. I've got to go on another retreat and go on another holiday and redecorate my house and go to a restaurant all these ways of giving ourselves treats very expensive a lot of them most of it is in pursuit of aliveness another way of pursuing aliveness might be to open the door to those spaces in the basement where we've locked away our aliveness our heart energy locked it away in unawareness so bring it into awareness and so we don't have to give ourselves treats. I've mentioned before that that experiment that was done in a couple of universities in America, Harvard and Virginia University, where they were studying, well I forget the exact details of what they were studying, however part of it was to see what do people do when they've got no distractions. And so these subjects were shut in a room on their own with nothing to read, nothing to look at, nothing to do. The only thing they had in there was a button that they could push which would give them an electric shock. And it's quite surprising how many people, rather than sitting there being alone with themselves, doing nothing, prefer to give themselves a substantial electric shock. It wasn't an insignificant electric shock. It wasn't just a little tingle or tickle. It was a substantial enough to be painful. Anything other than actually risk encountering all their denied life, you know, distracting themselves. So it's not only numbness that people feel as a result of the denied life. It's also this chronic fear that they're about to be overwhelmed and so the addiction to distraction is to be quiet and be still with nothing to do nothing to look at for a lot of people is desperately threatening why? it's not because there's any actual threat other than the denied energy, the denied life that we've got stored away so this Encouragement to cultivate satipanya or disciplined attention and discernment in pursuit of genuine aliveness. This is not merely a theory to think about and agree with or disagree with, rather an, an encouragement to apply 
discipline attention, apply it in a way whereby we get to meet ourselves, where we've rejected ourselves, where we become afraid of ourselves. And hopefully in the process we learn to befriend ourselves. Thank you very much for seeing your attention. Namayang Vadakatha Sadhu Karanitaramasi